0: Hey everyone, if you would like to support what I'm doing with Controversies in Church History and help me to expand its reach, please click on my Anchor page and click the support button to donate. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome to Controversies in Church History. I'm Derek Taylor, the host of this podcast and this uh, episode is the final installment of our series on the traditionalist movement. Episode 5, Back to the Future, 1988 to the Present. So we left off last time talking about the split uh, that happened in 1988, the excommunication of Marcel Lefebvre and the bishops of the Society of St. Pius X, and the split within them that led to the formation of the, of the Uh, Fraternal Society of St. Peter in communion with Rome and the issuing of the document the Motu Proprio Ecclesia Dei. And the next few years after 1988, we'll see a changing of the guard in the traditionalist movement. 1991, Marcel Lefebvre will pass away and go to his eternal reward, as will Antonio de Castro Mayer, the bishop from Campos. And the leader of the traditionalists there was also excommunicated in 1988. A few years later, you'll have, in 1994, the uh, election of Bernard Fellay as superior of the Society of St. Pius X. He'll come back into the story uh, later on, uh, as well as the re-election of Father Bissig, who was one of the people that left the Society of St. Pius X to come into communion in Rome in 1988 as the superior of the Free, uh, Fraternal Society of St. Peter, the FSSP, in 1994. That same year, uh, Eric de Savintham also announced he'd be stepping down as president of the Voce in 1995. He was replaced by Michael Davies. So you have this change happening in the 1990s, leadership is changing. By then, a few of their old enemies were gone from the Curia, but for the most part, uh, They still remained, in fact, I would say, have always remained. Most of the curia, especially most of the Congregation for Divine Worship, opposed to the traditionalist movement as a whole. And definitely not from the hierarchy or the liturgical establishment, which is almost uniformly the liturgical types uh, are against them, obviously. And yet the 1990s see growth Uh, in 1990. Um, the Institute of Christ the King Sovereign Priest is formed. Um, their mother house is formed in uh, Florence, in Italy, which uh, again will experience growth today. It actually has I think 80 priests worldwide, something like 50 um, seminarians. So uh, it's been growing since then as well. We actually have a, 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 a parish um, near where I live, which is very lovely, We're run by the Institute. It begins in 1990. And it's in the 1990s that Joseph Rodzinger begins more and more reaching out to the traditionalists. In 1990, he actually goes on Easter Sunday to the seminary of the FSSP in in Vigratsbad in Germany and celebrates the old liturgy. Um, This is an important symbolic event. The, The photos from this get out in the media. You have to understand by the 1990s, nobody's seen an old mass in nearly 30 years. And so to see that it's actually still around and it's still available is a big thing. This will happen again in 1996. Uh, another curial cardinal, uh, Cardinal Alphon Stickler, will hold a public <coughs> um, uh, TLM Mass in St. Patrick's, Patrick's Cathedral in New York City. And so these are actually important things. Most people, most people can't even, you know, don't even know they exist anymore. And so it gets exposure for the movement. New traditional news media uh, crop up in the 1990s. 1992, the Latin Mass Magazine in the United States uh, is founded, still in existence. Catholic Family News, another uh, traditionalist outlet. And of course, more familiar to most people on the internet today, In 1997, Site News is founded as well. And this is just on the, the American side of things. There are other institutions that won't bother you, bore you with this, but they begin to proliferate. <clears throat> even before the era of the internet really begins. So there's growth. The FSSP is growing by the end of um, the uh, end of the decade. They're, they're already beginning to break ground on a seminary in the United States, and they're making their way into Australia. Uh, so there's steady growth. The FSSP today, I think, has over I thinking, three, 330 um, priests, if I'm not mistaken, and something like 150, 160 uh, seminarians. So um, big growth uh, throughout this period up through you know, up the well, early 2000s, mid-2000s. And then in 2002, you have the reunification of those priests and their bishop from the old diocese of Campos. You remember the, the uh, priestly union of saint jean that had been formed by uh, Daman Antonio Castormaer after his death? Um, they enter into negotiations with Rome and in 2002, they are reconciled to the Holy See. Um, they form what's called the Apostolic Administration of Saint-Jean-Viane, which is I don't know what how to describe this. I don't, it's hard to find information about this because all that's in Portuguese. <laughs> There's very little English language information about it. But um, so the the administration of San Giuliani is sort of like a, a sort of like a trad diocese, I guess. Down in Brazil, um, they have their own bishop. They have their own seminary. Um, they have, by the way, a website where you can donate to them. You might want to because you know, help these people out. They, um, uh, it's been there ever since, uh, in communion groups. The only one of these group, I don't know what to call them, institutes, orders, religious orders, um, that are dedicated to the old mass that has its own bishop. So I don't know what's going to happen with it now, uh, after uh, uh, Traditiones Custodes, but it is still there, still in existence. And then in uh, 2003, yeah, sort of another public landmark uh, with the sort of norming, if you like, of the traditionalists. Happens in 2003 when Unovoce International, you mentioned they've been a big part of this story. They hold their first public mass at St. Peter's Basilica, not in the main, not in the main area, obviously, main altar, but in the Hungarian Chapel in 2003. Uh, a sign that they've been normalized, that they've been, you know, they're seen as part of the church, and not uh, at least by some people in the Curia, anyway. And then finally, up to about 2007, just before some more Pontificum is, uh, is issued. In 2006, the last of the orders in communion with Rome, the Institute of the Good Shepherd, is formed in France, again by former priests of the Society of St. Pius X. They come into communion. Uh, they're also been growing ever since. They, I think we have around 50 priests and something like 35 seminarians at the moment. Uh, they're founded in 2006, and in 2006 is founded Juventutum, which is the international youth organization uh, associated with, with Latin mass goers. So, again, if you know anything about the Latin mass crowd, they tend to be young, and so this is one of the major organizations, ma- the major organization as far as I'm aware of, um, designed for them. So continued growth up the middle of 2000s, despite... As we're going to see, still widespread opposition, which obviously is continuing today from the hierarchy, the curia and other official parts of the official church, if I'm going to put it that way. At the same time, something else is happening in the 1990s that needs discussion, which is related not necessarily totally to the traditionalist movement, but it's in conjunction with it. By the early 1990s, it has become no longer verboten for people to criticize the reform of the liturgy that took place in the 1960s. And in fact, Ratzinger is the one who's going to come up with a term he calls the reform of the reform. He wants to take a look at the old liturgy, see if it can't be improved to prevent the sort of, well, horrific stuff that goes on in so many places, which seems to turn so many people off from it. And he's encouraged by this and the fact that there are people in the, the 1990s willing to criticize it. And in fact, one major monument in this, which... You have criticisms of the liturgy, which are, again, mostly not by people who are called would call themselves traditionalists, but actually they they wind up you know serious scholarship um validating some of those criticisms of traditionalists. The most important of these is a man named Klaus Gomber, who was a monsignor, worked at the liturgical Institute of Trier in Germany for many years. He died in nineteen eighty nine. But he had published a collection of articles in the early 1980s called the Reform of the Roman Liturgy in German. It was published into French in 1992 with a uh, a foreword by Joseph Ratzinger. And then in 1993, Univoci International published it in English. And it's probably the place, if you want to find out what a serious traditionalist critique of the New Liturgy sounds like, not, not the internet ranters who go New mass Protestant, new mass heretic, none of that stuff. Serious criticisms, this is the place to start, even though it's about 40 years old by now. Um, just to give you an example of what he goes through in the liturgy, he talks about, for example, the whole issue of ad orientem, right? The idea that, you know, one of the justifications for the priests facing the people in the wake of the reform of the liturgy in the 60s was, well, this was the this is the way the early church did this, and he explains why that's not true, and why it's not true is they're confused by the practices of some basilicas in ancient Rome which were built in the 4th century, which all churches in the early church were built, with the most of them were built with the altar facing the east. That's why people turned toward the altar. That's why the, the priests turned toward the altar, but also the people did as well. As he explains in the book, um, a few of the basilicas in Rome, because of they actually were basilicas, they were public buildings before they became churches weren't built that way. They were built with the entrance facing the east. So what would happen in the liturgy is the priest would turn toward the entrance and the people. In other words, the people weren't looking at the, at the, uh, at the priest. Everyone was looking east because that's what you did. You faced the rising sun. Christ's you know, the symbolic idea of Christ is the rising sun, rising from the dead, all that stuff. And people in the 20th century misunderstood this, and that's where they got this idea from. Anyway, stuff like that is involved in that book. Are erudite? I'm not sure everything in there holds up after 40 years, but it's the beginning place. Uh, another book in the 1990s, which is uh, a very good one if you're looking for these sorts of things in a non, you know, uh, a non-divisive way, I'll put it that way. Uh, someone who's definitely not a traditionalist, but has been very critical of Pope Francis in other other regards, Father Aidan Nichols, um, English Dominican, wrote a book called "Looking at the Liturgy" in nineteen ninety six, which um, which actually deals with the liturgy in historical terms, reform of it, but also from a I don't know what you'd uh, an anthropological perspective. Um, Nichols cites a couple of uh, major anthropologists in their fields. In the 1960s, who criticized the new liturgy as being, you know, not being, you know, uh, as being a sort of um, a poor, a poor example of a ritual. And these, uh, this is Mary Douglas and Victor Turner, giants in their fields, also both Catholic, by the way. And um, what particularly they they criticized was the, the sort of instability of the new rite, the fact that it's so. And everybody's experienced this, of course. Um, it's so malleable. It doesn't It doesn't repeat the same, if you like, message everywhere, which everybody's had the experience of going from one parish to another, sometimes in the same town. But definitely, if you get different parts of, say, the United States, it'll look like a different form of worship. And they criticize this in the 60s, and he brings this up in this in this work. And I actually think that's a more, um, more important critique of the New Liturgy than any sort of theological critique, although they have good ones as well. But all this stuff is in the air in the 1990s. And I should mention, by the way, these are minority opinions most professional liturgists won't even listen to this stuff don't even bother to respond to it Uh, at least until well we get to when Ratzinger becomes Pope because he increasingly is doing this getting involved in liturgy and in fact in the 1990s he um he uh there's this exchange he has a nice exchange with a uh with a liturgist who complains to him that he is uh um, but he's because of his support for the old right. And uh, chast- writes a letter to him chastising him for, you know, abandoning the reform, abandoning the intentions of the Second Vatican Council. And he wrote a very interesting letter. And uh, it, I'm going to read parts of his reply because they're very interesting. Because he's clearly beginning to, to develop in a direction where this is not merely about... Uh, the liturgy for him in the 1990s. Let's read part of his reply to this this liturgist in 1999. And he says to this liturgist who is criticizing him for because he the liturgist wants him to get rid of the, the Tridentine rite and Ryan. he says this. He says that a considerable number of the Catholic faithful, especially those of the French, English, and German nationality and language, remains strongly attached to the old liturgy, and the Pope does not intend to repeat what happened in 1970 when the new liturgy was imposed in an extremely abrupt way. Um, Etc. Uh, Etc. Et so he doesn't want to impose on people, uh, and uh, you know, in such a way he says, and, and a vital undertaking that, that touches in a vital way the heart of the faith. And uh, goes on to say what he's trying to do is get these people to reconcile them with the Second Vatican Council. But um, one of the things he particularly he responds to is that. Um, he, the liturgist, complains that this the existence of this rite and these faithful threaten the unity of the church. They threatened the unity of the Roman Rite. And this is what he says. He says, I wish to comment on what on, on what concerns the unity of the Roman Rite. This unity is not threatened by small communities using the indult. He means the indult back then, the permission to to have the old mass, by small communities using the indult who were often treated as lepers, as people doing something indecent, even immoral. No. The unity of the Roman rite is threatened by the wild creativity often encouraged by liturgists. Um, and so, uh, again, he, he basically is, is uh, you know, criticizing him for saying, hey, you're, you're saying they're divisive. No, what's divisive are the things that are done with this new liturgy. And he increasingly, my point of reading this to you is he increasingly comes to see the, the old rite as a sort of bulwark against a lot of the craziness in the new and he writes a book uh, in year 2000, published one, called The Spirit of the Liturgy, which I recommend to you, which he talks about the old as being part of the church's immor- immemorial tradition. And so I think at some point, uh, Ratzinger went from thinking of this as being a temporary thing, maybe thinking of the, of the old mass as being a permanent value to the church. And significantly, he begins to see it also not just for liturgical reasons, but because it it witnesses to the unity of the faith across time. And in fact, he gives a it uh, gives a, a speech, gives a, a paper at a liturgical conference uh, at the Abbey of Font-Jean-Beau in France in 2001. And this is worth this is worth reading this excerpt, these excerpts to you, because it gets to why he thinks it's important and why. Uh, I I think the importance of the whole liturgy, but also the importance of the whole issue of traditionalism. Let me read, this is from Fonjambo, 2001, where he says, quote, a sizable party of Catholic liturgists seem to have practically arrived at the conclusion that Luther, rather than Trent, the Council of Trent, was substantially right in the 16th century debate. He means debate about the nature of the Eucharist. Uh, Moving on. He said, it is only against this background of the effective denial of the authority of Trent that the bitterness of the struggle against allowing the celebration of mass, according to the 1962 Missal, the old rite, after the liturgical reform can be understood. The possibility of so celebrating constitutes the strongest, and thus for them, the most intolerable contradiction of the opinion of those who believe that the faith in the Eucharist formulated by Trent has lost its value." If all that verbiage was too much for you, what he's basically saying is most professional liturgists don't believe in the real presence. <laughs> and that is what he's basically saying. He goes on, Quote, Trent did not make a mistake. It lent for support on the solid foundation of the tradition of the church. It remains a trustworthy standard. One thing should be clear. The liturgy should not be a terrain for experimenting with theological Hypotheses and this is, the, this is probably the most important part, in order to emphasize that there is no essential break, that there is continuity in the church, which retains its identity, it seems to me indispensable to continue to offer the opportunity to celebrate, according to the old missal, as a sign of the enduring identity of the church." Unquote. What he's basically saying is these liturgists, and of course, by extension, many bishops and people in the Curia, act as if there were some break in the identity of the church after Vatican II. And what he's saying is, well, no, it wasn't. Uh, Trent is still in force. The pre-Vatican II magisterium is still in force. And this liturgy is a sign of this identity. That's why he wants it there. And as I said before, all this is taking place with, uh, within the context in which there are efforts, there are efforts by people to try to, of course, uh, reform the new liturgy. The most uh, notable of these, if you're if you're a young person, young person, I'm in my forties now, so everybody's a young person now. If you're if you're in your twenties and thirties, you'll remember this, or at least the effects of this. In 2001, Rotzinger, uh, the, uh, the Congregation for Divine Worship published its fifth document, trying to implement the the reforms of Vatican II, called Liturgia Authenticum, which was a document which laid down. Uh, norms for vernacular translations of the New Missal from the Latin, and it did this, of course, because back in the 1970s, when they were translated, when it was translated into vernacular uh, vernacular languages for the first time, a lot of them were rushed, a lot of them were sloppy, but also a lot of them had liturgists and theologians shoving their own ideas into the translation. Most notoriously, of course, is the uh, translation of the con- prayer of consecration, which says. Uh, The part where it says, I offer you, you know, I offer this for uh, for you and for many in the Latin, pro multis. It was translated in many languages as for you and for all. Again, apparently certain liturgists and people wanted to insinuate the idea of universal salvation into the, uh, into the liturgy, and they wanted them to correct this. This is why, of course, they uh, they ordered uh, the commissions that it produced translations of the Bible and the liturgy to make new ones. This is why, in 2011, if you recall, you got remember you if you're old enough, you remember you are saying, uh, "Lord be with you and also with you." Now you say, uh, the "Lord be with you and also with your spirit." That's because that's what the Latin the text actually says. Uh, and so this is an effort to try to again to try to restore some sanity to the new rite, which as uh, we'll see in a moment, uh, Pope Francis is also thinking about uh, undoing that as well, as we'll see. Um, so by the early two thousands, you have at least a group of people who are willing to call, uh, willing to um, both uh, criticize the new liturgy and see the value of um, of the old one. In particular, is the most important person because he's the most powerful. That's the real reason. Um, one of the reasons, yeah, i said this before, one of the reasons traditionalists tend to get dumped on is not because they are any worse people than anybody else in the church, it's because they have no, if you want to put it this way, they have, other than Ratzinger, really no, nobody powerful in their corner in the official church, uh, in the, in the Vatican, in the bureaucracy, among the bishops for the most part. At the same time, even though all these things are going their way, there are some problems in the 1990s, early 2000s. Particularly the uh, commission for Ecclesia Dei, which is governs the, the religious orders in communion with Rome and, and with, uh, with uh, um, lay people who assist there. Uh, there. There's a lot of pressure on them to basically make this whole experiment go away as fast as possible. <laughs> In correspondence with Unovoche Commission, the Commission, with the Commission during the early 1990s, Una Voce International, basically it's made clear to them they don't share their aspirations, that they don't really see them as permanently part of, see the old right as permanently part of the church's tradition. Because again, let me repeat this Una Voce and most traditionalists, they're their goal was to have the church accept the fact that the old rite exists, it should exist, it should have equal parity with the new right, And even Cardinal Meyer, who was the most sympathetic of the, the commissioners, people who run these commissions, basically said, we don't agree uh, and that this is kind of an exceptional thing. Uh, and um, they also, again, they repeat this over and over again. They see Una Voce and these other uh, groups as being too exclusive, being too... Um, Unwilling to embrace the new right. and uh, this is where the charge of divisiveness, divisiveness comes from. Right, you have people who are like they won't touch the new new mass, which again, yeah, that can be that can be that can be a sign that they they're too touchy. On the other hand, they're afraid if they do this, they'll be sort of yoked into doing that only and not be allowed to have the old mass anymore, and um, that's the reason for a lot of this. Again, I don't excuse any uh, you know. Craziness or uncharitable statements uh, traditionalists make. But they have real fear. I hope everything, if you've, if you've gone this far, you at least will know they have real concerns about the way the treats church them. At least that. Even if you think they're in the wrong, I, I sincerely hope you don't think everything that's been done to them has been great. That's just awful. So, anyway, moving on. Uh, things got worse after the departure of Meyer from the commission as the next head of uh, the, the Ecclesia Dei Commission made a habit of telling bishops who came to Rome that the whole thing, the whole Ecclesia Dei Moto propria, was just a temporary device that would eventually go away, which is of course what most bishops and most of the curia wanted to hear. Um, both uh, of them and both uh, things have gotten better a little bit with the bishops since then, but uh, most of the curia still hates the old right and hates the traditionalists, pretty much with every fiber of their being. One other thing I'll mention happened in the 1990s, just as an aside, I'm not going to have too much to say about the SSPX for the 1990s, SSPX, but um, about their status, because, again, they, they were officially a schismatic group in the 1990s. But something interesting happened in 1993. Uh, in 1987, five um, Catholic laymen and women in Honolulu had, uh, had invited some SSPX priests uh, to say Mass for them, and they also invited Bishop Richard Williamson, who will come back to this in a very controversial way later on, perform a confirmation for them. When the Bishop of Honolulu found out about this, he excommunicated all five of these lay women women in 1991. They, in response, appealed to the Congregation to the doct- for the Doctrine of the Faith, which in 1993 ruled that assisting in an SPX chapel was not a schismatic act and that the excommunication was invalid. So in other words, and again, this is, doesn't mean everything else is okay about it, but going to an SSPX Mass is not a schismatic act. You won't become excommunicated if you go there. And as far as I'm aware, I, this has never been overturned. Again, I don't know what Francis is planning for for for, for the future, but um, that is not true that it makes you, uh, makes you a horrible person who's outside the church if you go to one of these things. Again, I'm not saying you should do it, but again, there's this... There's this tendency to overdo it with regards to traditionalists, as if everything they do is somehow wrong or verboten. Uh, Again, you need to be clear about these things. Again, again, it's possible something else has happened between them, but from what I can tell, nothing has changed in that regard. But there were also other, other problems with the commission in the 1990s. Uh, late in the 1990s, s, uh, the the uh, Father Bisick, the original head of the uh, FSSP, got re-elected again as head of the uh, the FSSP. However, there were complaints. Sixteen priests of the, I think they had fifty nine by then complained to Rome that the uh, that uh, the head, the superior of the FSSP, had forbidden them to celebrate the Novus Ordo. Now he did this because their constitution clearly stated they were to use the old nineteen sixty two missal. In response, um, the um, the commission basically sided with the pr- the sixteen priests, and stated that the uh, priests of the FSSP had a right to celebrate both missiles. But they went further than this; they actually removed Bissick as head of the head of the order and imposed their own candidate. voce uh, tried to intervene on this; they didn't, to no avail. Um, but again, it shows you how again there is this because Bis. I think part of the reason, of course, is Bissick had been. Again, he had been a member of the SSPX, but also because you had people even in the Ecclesiadeia Commission who did, who kind of, again, you know, basically never in the back of their minds felt these people were legitimate. Even though they'd come into communion at in Rome, even though they'd done everything they could to, you know, um, to um, to make clear their loyalty to the Pope and the Magisterium. And again, you do have, by the way, priests in the FSSP who, who will con-celebrate, for example, this will become an issue. Uh, Others don't want to do it and again, I think it's their perfect right. I don't know why it's a problem I don't know why this has to be a loyalty test only for these people and not for everybody else You don't make people who uh, celebrate only in the new right celebrate the old ones, So why vice versa? What makes them so much worse? Uh, I don't think this is right Moreover, you had uh, another attempt in uh, around 1999-2000 by the uh, commission the commissioner at the time informed Una Voce that they had a plan in the works, a document which would ask the uh, FSSP, the lay people attending their chapels, to use the new lectionary from the new missal to, uh, to try to uh, accept things like communion in the hand, altar girls, other novus ordo practices in, and into the new missal. In response, uh, Michael Davies, the president of Univoce, and uh, the rest of them wrote letters to the commission informing them that they would instruct Univoce members not to attend any masses where such practices were employed and that they would tell them to go assist at masses of the (laughs) SSPX. As you can imagine, the Ecclesia Dei Commission was not pleased. Uh, Univoce didn't care. Um, They were pretty much sick of this stuff and they put their foot down. And eventually, the whole matter was dropped. So they did have at least enough pull. That again, if you're, if you're, if you're, if, you're, if you are someone who's upset with traditionalists for being kind of schismatic or being oh divisive, you have to understand sometimes that's the only way to get them from stop imposing stuff on them like this. It really is baffling to me why they do it. And um, again, I think that's the cause of the problem, rather than the, these people are just you know, intrinsically evil or something. Again, sorry to get on my high horse. It does it does raise my ire, some of the things that have done these people. But speaking of anger, <laughs> the other thing that happens up until about, I'm going through up to 2007 here, the first part of this lecture, you have the growth of the Tradosphere on the internet. This is probably where most I hadn't thought about this until I did this this series, this is probably where most people get their impression of traditionalists from. It's probably the reason why they have a bad reputation. Um, But by the early 2000s, you begin to have, and again, this is part of the growth of the internet, you know, generally speaking, uh, websites populating the internet, um, pushing a traditional line. The earliest is actually more of a forum for Catholics, and this is a French one, Le Forum Catholique. Kind of self explanatory in France in 2000. I'm going to include a blog called Settimo Cielo, Seventh Heaven, um, which was created in 2003 by the Italian journalist Sandro Magister. Magister is not really a traditionalist, he's a, a follower of Ratzinger, but he is definitely a defender of the old liturgy. So I put him in there 2003, 2004, uh, Le, Saint, Le Salon But Beige, which is another French site. In the English-speaking world, probably the most important, definitely site for news and for if you want to learn what's going on worldwide, with traditionalists and what they're thinking, uh, the blog where uh, Verate opens in two thousand five, they probably have the best network of correspondents from Latin America, Europe, places like that. Um, they that's probably and I admit I because there's been so little written on traditionalist movement. I raided their website for information. It was very helpful. So they're probably the best one if you want to learn about that stuff. Uh, another one's founded in 2005, which is now firmly part of a traditionalist sphere. I don't know if it was back then. It's called the New Liturgical Movement. Mm, closer to the reform or the reform idea, but it's changed and gone into traditionalism since then, 2000, also 2005. And then uh, in Italy, the, probably the most prominent ones found in 2008, messa in Latino, the Latin, Latin mass in Latin. You also have the phenomenon of priest bloggers uh, emerging in the early 2000s. The most prominent one probably today is Father John Zulsdorf, 2005, established his blog. So you have this already coming into it being before, well, Ratzinger becomes Pope and before he uh, liberates the new mass, as it turns out temporarily. Um... You also have, by the middle of the 2000s, the rise of what I'm going to call social media grifters. (laughs) Because they kind of are grifting. Because some of these websites, as I mentioned before, again, say what you will about their tone. Sometimes they can be kind of angry. Uh, They're serious about the faith and they're serious about the liturgy. Then you're going to get in 2000s, you know, later 2000s, you know, uh, people like Michael Voris. Uh, he found St. Michael's Media in 2006. 2008, He's found something called Real Catholic TV. This becomes renamed Church Militant in 2012 when the Bishop of, uh, I think it's Dearborn, uh, instructs him to remove the term Catholic from his TV, from his uh, name, and that's, of course, one of the big websites of this traditionalism at this point. Um, 2010, uh, Taylor Marshall begins his YouTube channel. He is, of course a uh, notable personality. I'm calling them grifters because they make their living from this and they make their living saying outrageous things. And again, I don't even have that many problems with Taylor Marshall in terms of the doctrinal things he says, but they're saying crazy things to make a living, which is why you should be really careful. You should not identify them with older institutions in the traditionalist movement. This is why I've been taught talking about say uno voce which you've never heard of and by the way, one of the reasons you've never heard of uno voce is because most of their most of their work has been done behind the scenes for a reason. they can't reveal the content of private conversations with people in the Vatican um, there are real institutions out there who you should take seriously. yeah, you shouldn't take Taylor Marshall or, or Michael Boris very seriously. It doesn't even mean everything they say is wrong. it's just they're doing this stuff again to make a living be wary of it. The rest of these people do this for free they're a little more sober that's all i'm going to say by the way about the 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 you know i hear this a lot a lot you know people complain about rad trans on the internet i'm like don't listen to them <laughs> meet people in real life who go to these these, these places and talk to them <laughs> if you rely on the internet for for your knowledge of things you're going to get a very skewed vision of the world and again yes they have a presence yes they can be a problem. They're not nearly as, as big a presence as as they make themselves seem. Anyway, that's the first part of this episode. Which brings us to the next part of the podcast and the reign of Benedict XVI. As we've seen, uh, Rod Singer, by the time he becomes Pope, has seen a connection between the continuity of the church and its identity and the liturgy. And of course, he you know, has the CDF. He was worried about doctrinal matters, but he sees the connection between the continuity and doctrinal matters and in the, uh, in, the, uh, in the liturgy. He gives a speech uh, after he becomes Pope in 2005 at Christmas to the Curia. It's worth reading some excerpts from this, giving an idea where he was going with this and thinking about this. And this is, of course, his famous uh, hermeneutic speech, where he says that one of the problems that arose after the Second Vatican Council were two hermeneutics of the Council. One a hermeneutic of discontinuity and rupture, which I'm quoting here, quote, has frequently availed itself of the sympathies of the mass media and also one trend in modern theology. On the other hand, there is the hermeneutic of reform, of renewal in the continuity of the one subject church, which the Lord has given to us. He goes on, the hermeneutic of discontinuity risks ending in a split between the pre-conciliar church and the post-conciliar church. It asserts that the text of the council as such do not yet express the true spirit of the council. This is the spirit of Vatican II. Anyway, this is the important part I wanted to get here to when he was talking about this. He says, the nature of a council as such is therefore basically misunderstood. In this way, it is considered as a sort of constituent that eliminates an old constitution and creates a new one. The fathers, he means the fathers of Vatican II, had no such mandate and no one had ever given them one, nor could anyone have given them one because the essential constitution of the church comes from the Lord. What he's basically saying there is that the church has a divine constitution which does not fundamentally change. And that these people who are misusing the council are saying that it did change fundamentally that there's essentially a new church after 1962 and he wanted to oppose this. And as you're going to see, this is bound up with his with his uh, decisions about the liturgy. Um, because, and it was known uh, as soon as when he became pope, that he would, quote unquote, do something for the traditionalists. And of course, he finally did. And he issued the motu proprio sumorum pontificum in 2007 which, just to clarify what it did, what it didn't do, it proclaimed, um, both in the document itself, the motu proprio, and the accompanying letter, that the Old Mass had never been legally abrogated, uh, that it was always still valid and in principle remained open to people, thus contradicting <laughs> 99% of what had been said about the Old Mass since uh, 1970. And um, stating in his letter, of course, famously, that it remained what, were, what had been holy and sacred to the church in, in former times remained holy for us. The document itself, the mode appropriate, allowed priests to say the Mass without the permission of bishops. So they liberated it in that sense. And the letter, accompanying letter, addressed two of the main criticisms, and this is two of these things to this day are still part of this dispute, uh, about the old rite and its existence. He claimed that its existence did not Harm the church's unity, um, because this is one of the things. This is one of the, again. It's not just again when you hear people saying, you know, and we'll get to traditionis custodius in a minute, that the old mass causes divi- that old, uh, people that traditionalists are div- divisive. They're really saying that the old, the whole entire existence of the old liturgy is a problem, and that's what he is speaking against. Um, because they express the same faith in his mind, the new missile and the old. He also counters the idea that it will undermine Vatican II. Um, he says in his letter that this is just this is a um, a, a fear uh, that that basically uh, is you know um, uh, unwarranted. Uh, he says basically uh, you know the, the new mass will be considered to be, the, to be the normal form. Most people won't won't want to do this. And so, the old mass, basically, and so it, it's not a problem. Uh, he also uh, points out that his purpose in doing this was to heal a breach. Uh, he says this um, in the letter accompanying the document, the Modo Proprio. He says, It is a matter of coming to an interior reconciliation in the heart of the church, looking back over the past to the divisions which in the course of centuries have rent the body of Christ, One continually has the impression that, at critical moments when divisions were coming about, not enough was done by the church's leaders to maintain or regain reconciliation and unity. One has the impression that omissions on the part of the church have had their share of blame for the fact these divisions were able to harden. Now, he's speaking generally speaking, and many people have said this, that church leaders in the past, for example, with regards to the Reformation, made mistakes that helped the Reformation come about. What he's saying here, and he's absolutely correct if you've been listening to my podcast, is that the church leadership made mistakes with regards to the traditionalists. Church leaders are partly at fault, at least for those divisions. Obviously, I agree. In any case, um, he goes on to say that there can't be any contradiction between the two editions of the Roman Missal because, quote, in the history of the liturgy, there is growth and progress, but no rush, rupture. What earlier generations held as sacred remains sacred and great for us too, and it cannot be all of a sudden entirely forbidden or even considered harmful. It behooves all of us to preserve the riches which have developed in the church, is faith and prayer, and to give them their proper place. Thus, Joseph Ratzinger in his um, letter on Summon, uh, Summorum Pontificorum. Now, what were the reactions from people who opposed this? As you can imagine, there was a lot of howling and screaming and gnashing of teeth. In fact, the most ridiculous um, response to this came from a bishop, I don't know the, the, the diocese, the name Luca Brandolini in Italy. And he gave an interview in which he said, quote, I can't fight back the tears. This is the saddest moment in my life as a man, priest, and bishop. It's a day of mourning, not just for me, but for the many people who worked for the Second Vatican Council. A reform for which many people worked with great sacrifice and only inspired by the desire to renew the church has been canceled. I, I, I don't know what to make of this. Uh, uh, renew of, renewal of the church? Nobody goes to mass in Italy anymore. <laughs> what is he talking about? I get, I get being, I get you, I get attachment to the new. I guess I get attachment to the new missile. But the idea that you know a handful of people celebrating this liturgy are somehow a threat to all that, as if the Second Vatican Council and the new liturgy had been such a great success, when they clearly haven't. <laughs> Again, this doesn't. It, it does I'm not questioning the validity of the council or the new missile at all. I don't, but they have not renewed the church. How can you think such a thing at this point? What are you looking at <laughs> that makes you think that? And the idea that, that, it's the, in, that the, the maintenance of the old liturgy is somehow a threat to the great thriving of the church, especially in Europe, strikes me as deranged. In any case, the point about this is that the liturgical establishment, and especially the Italian bishops, never forgive Ratzinger for doing this. And They they didn't like him anyway. They really hate him after this, and I'll come back to this. Um, well, we'll <clears throat> back in a second, because we're going to get to the, the reign of Francis in a moment. <clears throat> but just to get back to why he issued this, because this is, again, this is something that... <clears throat> Francis, in his moda propria, will say he did it only to sort of reconcile the SSPX. That's why he liberated the old mass. Already in 2001, this is what Ratzinger says. This is before he becomes Pope. It's personally, I was from the beginning in favor of the freedom to continue the old, using the old missile for a very simple reason. People were already beginning to talk about making a break with the pre-conciliar church and of developing various models of the church. A pre-conciliar and obsolete type of the church and a new and conciliar type of the church. Unquote. When he became Pope in 2010, in one of his general audiences, he said, quote, After the Second Vatican Council, some were convinced that everything was new, that there was a different church, that the preconciliar church was finished, that we had another totally other church, an anarchic utopianism. Unquote. And then finally, after uh, he resigned, we'll get to Francis in a moment. Uh, in his uh, interview with Peter C- uh, Sevald, uh, Last Testament, in his own words, published in 2017, he said about uh, his reauthorization of the Old Liturgy, quote, The reauthorization of the Tridentine Mass is often interpreted primarily as a concession to the Society of St. Pius X. This is just absolutely false. It was important for me that the Church is one with herself inwardly, with their own past that what was previously holy to her is not somehow wrong now." Unquote. One last item uh, about uh, Ratzinger and the traditionalist, of course, is his efforts to reconcile with the SSBX. Someone as um, uh, as uh, um, generous as he was, tried to make amends. And one of the things he did in 2009, which became uh, a media uh, storm, was that he lifted the excommunications upon the four bishops who had been ordained by Marcel Lefebvre, or consecrated by Marcel Lefebvre, back in 1988, in 2009. And of course, a a you-know-what storm broke on top of all this, Partly because it turns out that one of these bishops, Richard Williamson, turns out to have been kind of a cretin and a Holocaust denier. And this led to a whole blow up. Uh, Again, people have been attacking Ratzinger as the quote unquote Nazi Pope, the Rottweiler, all this other stuff for decades. And this was used as a proof that, ah, see, the reason why he wanted the Old Mass is because he hates Jews or something like this. And even though, by the way, he rewrote the prayer for the conversion of the Jews in the Old Missal to take away the negative sounding words that were used about Jews in that prayer. All this was sort of um, blotted out by the media and used to tar. Uh, Again, this is sometimes used to tar traditionalists that they are somehow, you know... (laughs) Raving anti... They're basically revanchist to want to revive, I don't know, the Holy Roman Empire or something. That there's some sort of political or social... Necessary political or social evils you can draw from the old liturgy. Uh, And they use it to attack him and attack what he had done. Now, I mention this partly because he issues a letter the next year to bishops clarifying why he'd done what what he did. Um... And talking about why he was trying to reconcile with them, talking about, you know, um, uh, all those other sorts of things. I'll mention two things he mentions in the letter. You can go read it for yourself. It's on the internet. He's trying to have unity. He's talking about how can you ignore a community that's that big. Uh, At the time he was negotiating in 2009 through 2012 the SSPX, it had about 500 priests, over 200 seminarians several seminaries, a bunch of schools. It has over uh, 650 priests now, and God knows how many seminarians. The SCPX is growing, uh, and it's not going to stop. Uh, so what are you going to do? Right? you going to try to reconcile them, leave them out there? Um, that's his one of his points. The other point he makes is that they are still not in communion with the church. I should point this out, by the way, because they're not in schism anymore uh, because of his actions. Uh, I actually went to... Uh, to visit friends a few weeks ago and went to the, the local latin mass there and the priest actually said in the in the homily he was trying to ward people off from going to the local sspx chapel because they're quote-unquote uh, schismatic uh in in point of fact they are not any more legally in schism they are not in communion with the church they have no canonical authority they have no well back to a the second they actually do have some francis gave them some faculties but they have no standing in the church but um, they are no longer officially in schism. But the negotiations failed. Particularly over, of course, the doctrinal differences with the SSPX, over Dignitatis Humanae, the teaching on religious freedom, and the teaching on other religions, probably the two biggest things that the SSPX objected to. And their position was, these are errors in the documents of Vatican II, and they need to be corrected. And they haven't changed their position as far as I'm aware. And by the way, their position is that because the documents aren't fully dogmatic, because they don't conclude, they don't have to conclude the proper formulas, they're not binding with the uh, with uh, the church's infallibility so they can be corrected. And the Vatican even under, uh, the CDF even under Ratzinger makes clear they they won't need to accept them without those provisos, without negotiating about terms. And so it falls apart. Which brings us finally to the reign of Pope Francis. Now, I won't dwell on this too much, but what you should know is that Francis has always pretty much disliked uh, traditionalists. When he was bishop in Buenos Aires back in Argentina, when some war pontificum was was issued, like a lot of people, uh, he basically tried to scuttle it. Uh, and he did this by allowing only one parish in Buenos Aires to have the Old Mass, and then insisting that the readings be done um, according to the new lectionary, along with elements of, other elements of the new missal, which, again, the reason why bishops did this is so they make people go away, because they don't want that. They want the old missal. They don't want it mixed with the new elements. And eventually, of course, it was dropped altogether. And I say this because most bishops never implemented Summa Portificum. Uh, worldwide. They just ignored it um, in many respects. And I say this to point this out that uh, he is not averse to celebrating. He's actually celebrated the liturgy in Latin. He's also celebrated the liturgy for Ukrainian Catholics when he was in Argentina. He was their ordinary. Um, there are a, a handful of uh, Ukrainian Catholics in Argentina. He acted as their, their ordinary. Their, you know, legal guardian, I guess. And he celebrated their liturgy. So he doesn't have a problem with traditional liturgies in that regard. What he has a problem with, of course, I think, is tradition itself. Now, what you may not have noticed is that, if you're, especially if you're an American or an English speaker, is what's going on in Europe since he's been Pope. In 2013, one of the first things that happened under his pontificate early in that year, after Benedict resigned, was that uh, a, a canonical visitation was imposed upon A Franciscan order in Italy called the Franciscan Friars of the the Immaculate. I need to explain the backstory here. They had been founded in the 1970s um, with a special charism to to Mary. That's what the Franciscans of the Immaculate. They had never celebrated the old rite until in 2007. There's a stipulation in Summorum Pontificum that religious orders, if they want to celebrate the old mass, can do so. So in 2007, the head of their orders decided they're going to do both, which they did. By the time you get to 2013, they mostly are doing the old rite. Again, stop me if you haven't heard this before, four priests uh, complained uh, to Rome about this, uh, about them, uh, the drift of the order, uh, allegedly. And then Rome, of course, sent a commissioner there who almost immediately imposed the Novus Order, banned the traditional Latin Mass, uh, and put the FFI under a commissioner. Stop me if you've heard this before. By the end of the year, the directors of formation at the FFI seminary had all been transferred out. Uh, and um, by the end of the year, its seminary had been suspended completely. Its students transferred elsewhere. Ordinations were banned. Um, and the exception, acceptance of the documents of Vatican II, quote, in accordance with the magisterium, quote, became a condition of remaining in the order itself. Uh, on top of all this, the founder of the order, a guy named I think it's Stefanelli, uh, was confined to a monastery in central Italy and not allowed to receive visitors at all. Not from family, not from friends, from nobody. When uh, Marco Tossati, who's a sort of traditionalist um, journalist in Italy, complained about this publicly, the commissioner, a guy named Volpi, um, responded in the press by saying that The uh, FFI was guilty of, quote, crypto Lefebvre tendencies, and that's why they were being basically destroyed. Uh, There was no elaboration on this. The next year, there was a visitation for um, uh, the female branch of FFI, which had over 500 sisters. There were, I think, over 350, I think, uh, members of the male order. In any case, by 2015, the order has basically, because most of the people left has been more or less made defunct, uh, the male branch. Anyway, I think there are still some in the female branch. In 2014 as well, the Vatican basically seized all the property of the association as well. And in fact, when a few of these Franciscans tried to go, were invited in fact by a bishop in the Philippines to go there and restart the order, the Vatican forbade it. Eventually, uh, the the Italian state, by the way, stepped in and returned the property of the order to the lay associations associated with it. Uh, Last I checked, the founder of that order is still more or less confined to a monastery. I think some of the the monks managed to find refuge in England. uh, But otherwise, they were wiped out by the Vatican for reasons that are still unclear. But what looks like they were too traditional... Which has become a pattern under Francis. Uh, in 20, uh, 2016, uh, an abbey called Maria- Mariawald in Germany, which had again taken advantage of the provision in, mo- uh, in the in Samorum Pontificum that they could if they wanted to switch over to the old right, did. In 2016, their abbot stepped down under pressure, almost forced upon them by Rome. Two years later the abbey itself was closed. In uh, 2018, a dispute broke out uh, uh, in uh, France between an order called the Little Sisters of Mary, whose charism was working in hospitals. Uh, Between them and their bishops over uh, hospital care was led to a visitation by the bishop, uh, which the sisters disputed. It it accused them of all sorts of things, and they asked Rome to intervene. And the Congregation for Consecrated Life convened a commission and sent three commissioners to... Uh, to, the, uh, to, uh, to this, this order. Um, they tried to appeal to the Apostolic Signatura, which is the Supreme Court, if you like, of the Vatican, its highest court, where they were ruled against um, without their canon lawyer being allowed to present arguments. When the commissioners did visit there, um, they basically actually vindicated them from the original report by the bishop but, uh, according to their lay supporters, they were still accused of a variety of things, including engaging in, quote, too much prayer. Um, the use of, quote, de- uh, use of traditional habits. They had actually, they had um, originally had those habits. The order was founded back in 1939. After the council, they got rid of them. In the last 10 years, they would brought them back. This was criticized. They were criticized for being, quote, too classical, unquote, in their thinking for being unmoving in their original in their adherence to the original cares of the institute, uh, and these nuns objected particularly to the lead commissioner of this commission, who was an unhabited nun known for her, for her defense of Pope Francis's uh, exhortation, Amoris Laetitia. Despite all this, uh, despite then by the way, being much beloved uh, by many people. The prefect for the Congregation of Institutes of Consecrated Life, a man named, I'm trying to pronounce his name, João Braz de Avis, a Brazilian who is no friend to traditionalism, sent them an ultimatum. Uh, they could either uh, accept um, the this uh, sister, who is their this commissioner, as their authority, or, or uh, without reserve, quote unquote, or face dismissal from the institute. In response, the vast majority, I think at 39, 34 or 39 nuns, Uh, Asked for for release from their vows and left in 2019. So that order was destroyed for being too traditional. Then finally a couple of priestly societies, uh, one in Belgium in 2018 and another one in Italy in 2019 were also dissolved. Uh, A uh, priestly society uh, was formed in by um, uh, Archbishop Leonard uh, in Belgium called the priestly society of the holy apostles and this was not a, an old rite this was a new new of order priestly society but they they performed reverent liturgies apparently um which by 2016 had six priests had one deacon 21 seminarians and in fact part of the reason he formed it was to get around the seminary formation of the actual diocese which was of course a disaster nobody goes to mass anymore in belgium once, mon- once uh, L- uh, Leonard was gone, after he retired, uh, his protégé banished, kicked them out of Belgium, and then uh, dissolved them, and then the order itself was devolved, dissolved um, by Francis himself. He signed off on this in 2018 and dispersed to the four winds. And then finally, in uh, 2018, uh, the Vatican set up another commission to investigate the foundations of the Priestly Society a Familia Christi, This was an Ecclesia Dei uh, religious society, one based on the the old Ecclesia Dei commission where the priests celebrated the old rite. Again, no reason was given publicly, but in 2019, the Commissar appointed by the Vatican dissolved the society, released all the priests and seminarians from their vows and sent them all away. So you have had, from the beginning of Prince's pontificate, an effort in Europe at least, I don't know if this has happened outside of it, to crack down on traditionalism. At the same time, of course, he began in 2014, the Congregation for Doctrine of the Faith, negotiations with the SSPX. Again, odd him doing this. Uh, in 2015, he goes even further. Um, he grants faculties, he gives again, remember they have no canonical standing, he grants them faculties to hear confessions. This is his year of the mercy stick. They also conduct a canonical visitation of SSPX seminaries in 2015. Next year, he extends, uh, he, I wanna say permanently extends or indefinitely extends the faculties for confessions. Whereas at the same time, he gives a speech or an interview in which he says the quote unquote reform of the reform is dead. In other words, he voices what is the opinion of almost all professional liturgists is that the new missile should not be touched. It's perfect as it is. It's dead. Finally, in 2017, he actually goes further and gives faculties to the SSPX to perform marriages. And by then, the negotiations reach their apex. There is some thought that this will actually go through. Uh, They make an offer to the SSPX that um, they offered them a personal prelature. A personal prelature is basically a sort of non-geographical diocese headed by a, a bishop. This is what Opus Dei has. They have a bishop that oversees their worldwide uh, um, order. The deal falls through basically for two reasons. Um, one, um, over the same problem before full acceptance of the documents of Vatican II uh, without any sort of compromise at all. But also lack of trust in Rome. The SSPX is, of course, by this time, I'm, I'm not going to go through it here. Uh, Francis has already issued Amoris Letizia. They're very worried and concerned about this. They know what's going on with those traditional orders in Europe, and they simply don't trust Rome to keep their word. They're afraid that if they go, in, go under their authority, they'll try something on them like they did with the, the Franciscan, Franciscan friars, the Immaculate. And so things fall apart. At the same time, Francis says, uh, the liturgical reform is quote unquote, irreversible. There's no going back on the liturgical reform. We can't go back, going back is wrong. And after the collapse of the negotiations with the SSPX, things begin to change pretty quickly starting in 2019. The Ecclesia Dei Commission, which had been set up in 1988, is all of a sudden folded into the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, and basically it's, it's sort of wrapped up. This raises eyebrows initially, but most traditionalists don't seem to think that there's anything to it. However, the next year, the uh, CDF uh, issue, I think it's the CDF, I think it's the CDW, I don't know which one, the Vatican issues a, a survey of bishops on their experience of the Tridentine Mass in their diocese. This raises more eyebrows in the traditionalists uh, fold. In fact, um, the Latin Mass Society of the UK issues their own survey just uh, in case and try to counter what may be negative perceptions about this. Of course, earlier this year in 2021, I think in February, uh, Basically, all masses uh, in uh, in St. Peter's, uh, an announcement is made that all masses in St. Peter's are going to be held in Italian. There to be no more private masses on the side in the side chapels of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, and of course the Tridentine Mass is banished to the crypt in uh, in St. Peter's. So you can see, after the collapse of the negotiations of the SSPX, there is this increasing clamping down on. Uh, well, as you'll see, uh, tradition. And then in June, late June, shortly before uh, the issuing of *Traditionis Custodes on July 16th of of that month, the Bishop of Dijon in France expels the FSSP from his diocese. Why? Because the priests there are refusing to concelebrate with uh, priests of the diocese in the new rite. Uh, And again, you may say, well, this is divisive, you should do this. And again, it might be. It might be that. On the other hand, this may be just a demand for loyalty, which is designed to lure them in so they can sort of wean them off the old mass, which is, I think, exactly what it was. But, of course, the Bishop of Dijon uh, uh, knew it was coming. July 16th, a few weeks later, Francis issues traditionis Custodes, which abrogates uh, the Ecclesia Dei Motu Proprio, Simorum Pontificum, severely restricts the... Uh, The saying of the Mass restricts it to, well, first of all, banishes uh, for some reason. uh, They can't say the Mass in parishes, has to be held outside it. I don't know where they're supposed to do this. It basically restricts new groups uh, from forming uh, to hear the Mass. Uh, And it basically, the accompanying letter, if you haven't read through this, it... um, it, uh, it's, well, it basically says in the, in the uh, states, in the, in the modu proprio, that the, uh, the, the Missal of Paul VI is the only expression of the Roman Rite. In other words, it doesn't come out and say legally, it doesn't use the legal form, but it basically says the old mass shouldn't exist anymore. And the accompanying letter basically it does say, I don't know how, to, how uh, in front of me, but it says, it envisions the return of those people who are worshiping with the old mass to the new one. So it is not merely about restrictions. It is really about destroying the old mass and getting rid of it. So we come to the present moment. Say, let's assess uh, all of this Hopefully, if you've listened this far, you know by now, can see what the significance of the whole traditionalist movement and the Old Mass is. It's not just about the Old Mass. It's not just about a bunch of cranky people who don't like the new one. There are bigger things involved, I should think. Although, one of the things about this is that the survival of the Old Mass is almost certainly guaranteed. As I've said before, the SSPX is growing. I think they just opened or are planning to open 30 new chapels this year. Um, they're not going anywhere. And this is what makes uh, Pope Francis and his intentions so bizarre and ridiculous, is that not only will the old, even if he could, and this is a question whether or not he can actually do this long term, get rid of the old mass within the church. Because as we've seen, of course, not all bishops are going to enforce this, at least not immediately. Um Even if he could wave his magic wand and make the old mass go away within the Catholic Church, within the communion of Rome, it would still exist not just in the SSPX, in, you know, impaired communion, the old Roman liturgy would still exist in the Orthodox Church. That's right, you heard me right, the old Roman liturgy is actually present in the Orthodox Church the Antiochian Orthodox Church in America actually created what they call a Western Rite in 1961 for a group of Anglicans that came in to their communion, which is basically the old Tridentine Mass translated into English with an epicles stuck in it, long story. Basically it's the old mass in English for these people. So if Francis is successful in this, it'll still exist in the freaking Orthodox Church, but not in the Church of Rome where it began in the fourth century, at the at the latest, <laughs> if you can imagine. But of course, this is bigger than all this, right? You know, uh, bigger questions involved here: the new mass and the old. What's the relationship between the two of them? Do they represent a, represent a new faith and an old one? Do and this is the question, of course, because this is what gets thrown at traditionalists. Well, they they don't agree with the new missile. They don't agree with Vatican II. Uh, I can assure you that pretty much every Latin mass I've ever met who's in communion with Rome is perfectly fine with Vatican II. Yes, they may have some reservations. I have some reservations about Vatican II. I definitely have some reservations about the new mass. But nobody I know thinks that these things are are not binding in some way. How binding they are is a different matter. Not every document in an ecumenical council is necessarily, uh, you know, a dogmatic thing binding the church for all time. And in fact, that's part of the problem with making Vatican II a condition of loyalty in the church, is that there's serious disagreement on certain du- disputed passages, which has never been re- reconciled anyway. But more important than this um, uh, is that, you know, more important than whether or not uh, traditionalists accept the teachings of Vatican II is, do the people who hate the Old Mass accept the tr- teachings of the church that came before Vatican II? Do they accept the Council of Trent and his teaching on the Eucharist? Do they accept uh, the magisterium of Pius IX, Pius uh, um, um, XIII and so on and so forth? Do they accept the reaffirmations of pre-Vatican II uh, teachings in the post-conciliar era? Do all the people, uh, you know, uh, talking down traditionalists accept *Humani Vitae, for example? Do they accept uh, Veritatis Splendor? If you don't know what Veritatis you, you know what Humana Vitae is. That's the reaffirmation of the ban on contraception. Do they accept Veritatis Splendor, which is uh, Pope John Paul II's encyclical, uh, basically against moral relativism? Do they accept that one? Uh, you know, there's this idea in uh, Francis' motu proprio that people who are attached to the old right need to be sort of like quizzed on their belief in Vatican II. I would love to see that applied to people that go to, the, to ordinary parishes. <laughs> uh, how much they believe in the teachings of Vatican II, huh? If we're gonna do this. But all of this raises another question. One is that obviously, obviously, the problem here is not the traditionalists The problem is, of course, is that baptized Catholics, well, first of all, most baptized Catholics don't even go to Mass, but even the ones who do don't really believe the same things. We share a set of common institutions in the Church, we don't necessarily share the same faith. And can the Pope, Francis or anybody else, create a unity of faith by fiat? I actually had just written an, an, an article. It's going to be published in Crisis Magazine pretty soon. You should go check it out. I talk about this. But, you know, one of the things that Benedict had a problem with it, with his motto proprio, is nobody would enforce it. And he said something very curious at one point. He was um, visited by Bernard Fillet, the head of the SSPX, in 2005. And Bernard Fillet appealed to him to use his authority to sort of end all the divisions in the church. And... Benedict pointed to the door. I guess this is of of of, um, the Castel Gandolfo, and said, supposedly said, "My authority ends at that door." the The point is, how much authority in practice do popes really have? Can will Francis's uh, motu proprio even be enforced? It doesn't look like it will be. It certainly shouldn't be. Um, I, think it's a, I think it's based on some false premises. And I think it's uh, unfair, deeply unfair, to those people who love that mass. As I said before, this is really about, in some ways, who the church is and what she believes. You know, if you recall, maybe people don't know this, but after the Protestant Reformation, you know, Luther broke away from the church and one of the taunts that Catholic apologist uh, threw at Protestants was, where was your church before Luther? Because he was sort of claiming to sort of break away from the church and start a new one. Well, what's at stake here, of course, is the identity of the church over time, because pretty clearly both Francis and the people around him embrace what Benedict XVI called the hermeneutic rupture. To give you some examples, if you don't know this, people don't know these things, um, the Secretary of State in the Vatican, a man named Cardinal Pietro Parling, very powerful guy, probably the second most powerful guy in the Vatican after the Pope. And he gave a speech at the Catholic University of America in 2017. You can't find it anywhere. They embargo the text. You can find it on the internet. It's not really worth listening to, by the way. And it's in an Italian, but it has uh, subtitles at the bottom of it. It's on the, C- it's on the CUA's uh, YouTube channel. It's unlisted, but you can find it. And Parling's speech was about Vatican II. And in that speech, at the very beginning, he quotes about 10 and a half minutes into the speech, he quotes a theologian named Joseph who well, I have no idea who that is, but someone from the late 60s, 70s, who said that, and he quotes him positively, he said that after the, after the Second Vatican Council, absolutely nothing in the church is the same. He quotes this line, and then he says to his listeners who we were bishops, he says that this may sound extreme, and I'm paraphrasing, this may sound extreme, but that this is true. That everything after the Second Vatican Council is "quote post conciliar Another uh, confidant of Pope Francis is Cardinal Reinhard Marx from Germany. A couple of years ago, a New Year's uh, New Year's at a New Year's Mass, he gave a homily in which he said uh, these words: "quote I'm quoting here." Uh, evolution in society and historical demands have made tasks and urgent needs for renewal clear to see. I am certain that the great renewal impulse of the Second Vatican Council is not being truly led forward and understood in its depth. Further adaptations of church teaching are required. Truth is not final. We can recognize it recognize it deeper in the shared path of the church. And he tells his congregation apparently, Turn yourselves to, new, to a new thinking, not a flight into the rhetoric of the past. Unquote. And then finally, if you don't know, a couple of days ago, very recently, Francis had a radio interview, which he was asked about, uh, Traditiones Custodas, and he had this to say, and again, I'm going to point this out here, just, I don't want to nitpick, I don't want to bang on about this, I don't agree with him, I think what he did was very wrong, but listen to what he says, he says, the subject was studied, and based on that, the concern that appeared... The most that was that something was done to help pastorally those who had lived a previous experience was being transformed into ideology, that is from a pastoral thing to ideology. So we had to react with clear norms, clear norms that put a limit to those who had not lived that experience unquote. Now, I'm pointing out this to you because basically what he's saying here people have pointed this out is that well, Young people haven't lived, uh, weren't old enough to know the old mass, There, so they shouldn't do it now. And that's part of what he's saying, but let me highlight those words. He says those who had lived a previous experience, and they want to limit access to the mass of people who haven't lived that experience. They want to limit the mass, they don't want young people going to the mass, basically. Even though it attracts young people, right? Now I point that out to you because when he says people who have lived a previous experience, he's talking about older people, but I don't think he's talking about the liturgy. Because of course, young people have experienced that liturgy. No, when he says people who have lived that experience, he's talking about people who lived the experience of the pre-Vatican II Church, is at least, is what I think he's saying. In other words, that old liturgy is only for that old church, which no longer exists. Again, uh, I, I, again, that's how I, I I think it's the obvious import. He clearly believes that the pre-Vatican II Church no longer has authority, or at least doesn't have much authority anymore in the church. Now, I've you've heard me in this this podcast, and you, I again if you've ever listened to any of the things I've said I've I've done before, I don't get upset, I don't get angry. Now, I've reiterated this. I think this is unfair to these people. I have friends, loved ones who go to this mass, who love it. Uh that's part of the reason why this gets me upset. But what gets me also gets me upset is that I'm a convert to the faith. I was baptized in 2003 and quite frankly, I cannot accept this whole idea that Cardinal Pereline, Pope Francis, Cardinal Marx are espousing. When I was baptized in the church, I, I asked when I was going through RCA, do church still believe the same things it did before, you know, you know, the modern world. And I was assured that that was the case. Uh, Was I lied to? Because if I wasn't, somebody's lying to me now. I don't recall when taking my baptismal vows, being asked if I rejected the pre-Vatican II Church and all its works. I don't recall my baptism being asked if I wanted to be baptized into the mystical body of Vatican II. I was being baptized into the body of Christ, which has been the same ever since uh, God became man and came to earth a couple of thousand years ago. And so what's happening here is I think a, a faction of people, and I'll give you one more example, who think the liturgy is somehow a, a flag of a, a new revolutionary church or using it to divide the church and then blaming the people who want to oppose this. Um I last thing I'll mention about this, one of Francis's followers, apparently <clears throat> in recent years he's come under the influence Francis has of a of the College of Saint elmo San Anselmo, I should say San Anselmo Anselm in Rome, and the liturgist there, one of whom is a man named Andrea Grio. He's apparently the, one of the inspirations for the moto Proprio, um he wrote a whole book attacking some Pontificum back in two thousand and twelve. He is someone who has, besides advocating for the banning of the traditional mass, has co-authored a book um, saying that the church should bless homosexual unions. He has publicly denied the doctrine of transubstantiation. And he has also publicly uh, basically questioned the indissolubility of marriage. So this should give you an idea. This is the whole point here is that continuity in the liturgy has, is uh, connected to continuity and belief. And the whole action of using the institutions of the church, using the papacy, using using the institution to pit people between their loyalty to the Pope or to the current magisterium and tradition is what is really divisive here. Not people who love the old mass. Not people who think that Trent still is in force, who still believe in the teacher, church's teaching on sexuality. Um... And um, this sort of positivist notion that you can just reshape the church by bureaucratic fiat strikes me as, quite frankly, insane. Um, No amount of issuing orders is going to make unity where you don't already have it. And this seems like just a real serious sign of decay and loss of faith on the part of the church's leaders. In any event, um, what this is all about eventually is not just the traditionalist movement itself and all of this, not about the old mass per se, but about tradition and whether or not it has any place in the church. And you can see this by the way, you know, efforts to stamp out Latin and the Novus order. I mean, you never see those things anymore. Um, even uh, getting those things is difficult to get from, parish, um, uh, from parishes and stuff like this. And of course, I think in the long run, uh, the traditionists will be vindicated. I don't know that they'll, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, in the short run, I think this uh, modupropia will do a lot of damage. But I expect it'll probably be ignored in the long run, like uh, it's more Montificum was. But in the meantime, it causes uh, pain to people who don't deserve it. Uh, and so I ask you to keep um, these people in your prayers, you know, um, show some solidarity to them. And, um... They're not your enemies, the traditionalists. And keep me in your prayers as well as I try, strive to uh, uh, tell the truth as best I can in these podcasts. And so that is it uh, for my series on the traditionalists. Um, Next, well, one note, I'm actually, (laughs) I have a job uh, and the semester is on, so my next series will not begin for another couple months. I have work to do, so I have to get back to teaching but the next one coming up, I've forgotten your name. I'm sorry if you're listening to this. A listener um, messaged me on Facebook and asked for a series on liberation theology. So the next time when you hear me again, go from traditionalism to something revolutionary. And so next series will be on uh, the history of liberation theology, what it is, where it came from. So all that. Thank you guys for listening. God bless. Thank you for your support. Keep the faith. And, uh, And uh, um, hopefully uh, you'll be hearing from me soon. Take care.